0: 66. Today, as we continue our journey through the Bible, from the book of Genesis, through the book of Revelation, we're cruising through these 66 books, one book each Sunday. After last week's general introduction to the Bible, this morning's second lesson is focused on the book of Genesis. We're just going to dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Genesis fit into the overall structure of the Old Testament? Well, you'll notice on the front page of your notes, there's a chart there. I'll put it up here as well. The Old Testament consists of three different kinds of major books, historical books, there are 17 of them, the first five known as the Pentateuch or the books of law and then the 12 books of history. Then there's a middle section, the five books uh, that are the poetical books and then finally the Old Testament ends with the 17 books of that are called the prophetical books or prophecy books, the five major prophets and the 12 minor Prophets. You'll notice as you look at that chart that Genesis, of course, is the very first of the 17 historical books, and more specifically the first book of the Pentateuch, the five books of law. Now, changing your perspective and looking at this from a chronological standpoint, we still have three major types of books. We have the historical, we have the poetical, and we have the prophetical, but Genesis is the very first of 11 Old Testament books that form the actual Old Testament story line. From this historical framework, you'll notice this chart, by the way, is that big chart that is in the middle of all of your notes. You kind of look at that, and you can look at it in more detail a little bit later. But Genesis is where um, uh, the first of those uh, historical books, and then you uh, will notice that the poetical and the prophetical books hang from that structure, chronologically speaking, and how they all fit into that timeline, and we're going to focus, of course, on the book of Genesis this morning, as it fits into the overall structure of the Old Testament. So, what then, leaving that chart, you can come back to that, now you're going to go to the center uh, insert of your notes, okay? What is the structure of Genesis itself? Well, Genesis is a word in Greek that means origin, source, or beginning, or beginning, The original Hebrew title, Beresheth, means in the beginning, which of course are the first words of Genesis 1 and verse 1. Beginning, we'll come back to that in just a bit. It's readily apparent that Moses is the author of Genesis. In 1 Kings 2 and verse 3, David said to his son Solomon, Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to Him and keep His decrees and commands, His laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Don't miss those words. As written in the law of Moses. After Jesus healed a man with leprosy, He told the man Matthew 8 and verse 4, Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. And we can see from those two passages and many more just like them that both the Old Testament and the New Testament recognize Moses as the author of the five books of law or the Pentateuch. Now I've listed some direct and indirect testimonies to Moses authorship from both the Old Testament and the New Testament for your own further study there in your notes later. Although Genesis does not directly name its author, and although Genesis ends some three centuries before Moses was even born, there's little doubt. That he is the writer who penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Jewish Talmud supports that, as does first century historian Josephus. Jesus acknowledged that. The apostles acknowledged that. Even the early church fathers identified Moses as the author of Genesis. Look at Stephen's testimony in Acts 7 and verse 22. Stephen said Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. It would be difficult to find any other person in all of Israel's history who was better prepared and qualified to author this book. Trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians, which, by the way, was the forefront of all knowledge in that day and age, Moses was providentially prepared under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to gather all of the available records and manuscripts and oral narratives and put them together in written form. Now, the structure of Genesis easily divides itself into three geographical settings. You'll see the map there in your notes as well as up here, although it's pretty small to read up here. But it begins in the fertile crescent, which is noted by the green-shaded area, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Then it moves to the area of Canaan in chapters 12 through 36, which is noted by the red little dot there. And then finally the book ends up in Egypt in chapters 37 through 50. Now Genesis 1 through 11, the first section, spans more than 2,000 years and 1,500 Miles in that fertile crescent, and it covers things like creation, the Garden of Eden, the fall, the great flood, and the Tower of Babel. The section ends with the death of Terah, who was Abraham's father. The second section, Genesis 12 through 36, spans just under 200 years in the little red dot there of Canaan, and covers God's call and covenant with Abraham along with the lives of his son, grandson and great-grandson, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And this section ends with Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers. The third section, Genesis 37 through 50, spans just over 90 years in Egypt. First with Joseph, who rises to power under Pharaoh, and then with the settling in of Jacob, Joseph's father, and his sons, Joseph's brothers, in Egypt. This section and the book of Genesis then ends with the death of Joseph. Now with that overall structure, in mind, let's move on to the story. Genesis is not so much the story of humankind as it is the story, the first chapter in the story of the redemption of humankind. And as such, Genesis is a highly selective interpretation of history from a spiritual perspective. Overall, the story of Genesis can be summed up in four great events and four great people. Let's begin with the four great events. Chapters 1 through 11 lay the foundation upon which the whole Bible is built. The essence of Genesis 1 through 11 is built around these four great events. The first would be the creation Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation. In fact, read Genesis 1 and verse 1 out loud with me. Would you read this with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's probably the best known verse, is it not, in all of the book of Genesis. God is the sovereign creator of matter, energy, space, and time. Humankind, man and woman, male and female, is, if you will, the pinnacle of his creation. The second great event would be the fall in chapters 3 through 5. We call it the fall. Creation was followed by corruption. In the first sin, the eating of the forbidden fruit, humankind is separated from God. In the second sin, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Humankind is separated from humankind. And the curse of sin, death and separation, corrupts all of God's creation. Every living thing today is under that curse. The third great event would be the flood in chapters 6 through 9. The flood. As the human race multiplies, so sin multiplies. Until God is compelled to intervene, destroying all of humanity, except for Noah and his family, the flood. And the final great event would be the nations in chapters 10 and 11. Genesis, you see, teaches the unity of all humankind. We are all children of Adam through Noah. Genesis 11 and verse 1 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. But we corrupted even that. (laughs) As we rebelled against God and we said to ourselves in our pride and our arrogance, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And so once again, God intervened, fragmenting the single language and culture of the post-flood world into many nations, scattering people over the entire face of the earth. And so the first 11 chapters have four great events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations. That brings us to the four great people. Once the nations are scattered, the balance of the book of Genesis focuses on one man and his descendants in chapters 12 through 50. It begins, of course, with that one man. That's Abraham, (laughs) the patriarch of all patriarchs. His story is told in chapters 12 through 25. The calling of Abraham in chapter 12 is certainly the pivotal point in all of the book of Genesis. I asked you to turn there at the beginning of today's lesson, so please follow along now as I read those first three verses. Genesis chapter 12, we pick it up with verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Don't miss those words at the end of verse 3. In fact, let's read them out loud together up here on the screen. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That all peoples... Include you and me. Clear back here in the book of Genesis. We are already in God's plan of redemption. He made it through a covenant. And this covenant, which is called the Old Covenant, or Old Testament, is confirmed again and again with Abraham. And This is foundational to all of God's plan of redemption. His desire to bring salvation to all humankind. That was passed on then, of course, to the second great person, which is Isaac. In Genesis chapters 21 through 35, God reestablished that same covenant that he had made with Abraham with his son, Isaac. The third great person would be Jacob in chapters 25 through 49. Again, God reestablished the covenant with Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son, Jacob. And he changed Jacob's name from Jacob to... Israel, very good, from which we get the nation of Israel. You might recall the many stories in Genesis about the conflicts between Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Jacob, or Israel of course, was the patriarch of the twelve whose descendants then became the twelve tribes of Israel. And among those was his very favorite son, the fourth great person, and that is Joseph, whose story unfolds in chapters 30 through 50. This dreamer (laughs) suffered at the hands of his own brothers and became a slave in Egypt, first to a man named Potiphar and then later to Pharaoh. By God's providence, Joseph rose to power in Egypt. Genesis 41 verse 41 tells us that Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And all that was orchestrated by God So that when famine devastated the world, Joseph could move his family, his father Jacob or Israel by this time, and his brothers and all of their households from that little tiny spot of Canaan to the land of Goshen in Egypt, where there was plenty of stored grain and food. Genesis then ends with a note of impending bondage with the death of Joseph. And we'll pick the story up right there next Sunday when we study the book of Exodus. So that's the story, which brings us to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities will be to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. In our introductory lesson last week, we pointed out that there is one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs throughout all of Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so, here in Genesis, we want to stop and look and listen for the Savior, where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Genesis? Well, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, God said to the serpent, Satan, after Adam and Eve's sin, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heal. The expanded Bible puts this same verse this way. I will place open hostility between you and the woman. Your descendants and her descendants will be enemies. One of her descendants, the Messiah, will crush your head and you will bite his heel. Now scholars agree that that's the very first announcement of the gospel. The good news of God's plan of redemption through his son Jesus. Of course, that prophecy came true at the cross. Satan bit Jesus' heel. He won a temporary victory, did he not? But Jesus crushed Satan's head when he paid the death penalty for our sins, and three days later, he rose victoriously to life again. Now, time doesn't allow us to dig any further, but I would just point out that isn't obviously the only place where Jesus appears in the narrative of Genesis. In fact, Genesis, as you read through it, the moves from the general to the more specific in its Messianic prophecies. Here in Genesis 3 and verse 15, we're told that the, the, the Messiah will be the offspring or the descendant of the woman, Eve. Then Genesis 4 and verse 15 narrows it a bit more to the line of Seth. Chapter 9 verse 27 to the son of Shem. Chapter 12 verse 3 that we read a moment ago to the descendant of Abraham. 21 verse 12 of Isaac. 25 verse 23 of Jacob. And in chapter 49 and verse 10 we're told the Messiah will come through the line of the tribe of Judah. The Savior. That brings us to our final point today, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions or applications can we glean from the book of Genesis? Now, certainly, there are many, 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 many lessons to be learned from Genesis. But let me just highlight the sense of Genesis in two key words. The first is the word beginnings. Beginnings. Genesis, which means beginning was written to present to us the beginning of everything except God who always has been for example i wrote some a list there in your notes just look at it real quickly it's the beginning of the universe creation It's the beginning of humankind, male and female. It's the beginning of the Sabbath, the principle of rest. The beginning of marriage, husband and wife. The beginning of sin with the fall. The beginning of redemption with the promise of the Messiah and the Savior. The beginning of family, father, mother, and children. The beginning of civilization as Cain moved out to farther regions. The beginning of government following the flood. The beginning of the covenant that God made first with Noah and then with Abraham and on God has gone with covenant relationships. It was the beginning of nations in chapter 11. Now, that's just the beginnings in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And somebody's going to say, so what's the big deal with all of these beginnings? Well, they are foundational to the rest of the bible. And what we believe and practice as Christians even today they are foundational to the bible, God's word. I mean think about it with me for just a moment. If we undermine the beginning of the universe, creation, if we toss aside in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what is the result? Are we not reaping the consequences of this very thing in our schools and in our culture today? If we compromise Genesis 1 and verse 27, so God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. Do we not end up exactly where we are in questioning gender identity as we do in our culture today? We are so confused because we have tossed this aside. If we ignore Genesis chapter 2, 22 and 24, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib He had taken out of the man, and He brought her to the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. If we just ignore that, isn't the end result a complete desecration of God's sacred design for marriage? And isn't that exactly what the homosexual agenda has accomplished in our nation and in our world today? And I could go on and on. Each of these beginnings is absolutely foundational to God's order and design for our lives. If we add to them or we take away from them, if we ignore or remove them, we undercut and destroy the very foundations of the Word of God itself. These beginnings are here for a reason. God has given them to us to provide the basic foundational framework for how we are to live our lives. And let me remind you, life always works best when you follow the manufacturer's instructions. (laughs) And so we must repent. And we must return to these foundational beginnings. We are so messed up in the sin and rebellion against God and these beginnings. So first, the sense of Genesis is all about beginnings. We must never ever ignore, compromise, or undermine these foundational commands and principles. Which leads me to the second key word, and that's the word obedience. Obedience. In Genesis 12, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land, I will show you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. He obeyed. (laughs) He went. He did it. In fact, in Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, the writer refers to this time in Abraham's life in verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Don't miss those words. He obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. Unquestioning, unhesitating obedience. James picks up that same story and theme in James 2, verses 21 through 24. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? You see that his faith and his actions were working together And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do. And not by faith alone. Again, obedience. And obedience is a theme that shows up again and again. Throughout the book of Genesis, it all started with God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve failed that test of obedience, as did those who followed them, as do we today. But there are also several other examples of faithful obedience throughout the book. In fact, Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, highlights several of these men and women who trusted and obeyed God. Just go through this with me. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. But before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with Faith. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. And how do we know they had faith? By obedience. By obedience. By obedience. By their obedience, what they did. Abraham obeyed and he went. Abel brought to God a better offering. Noah built an ark. And again, the emphasis is on obedience. As James put it in James 2 and verse 22 regarding Abraham, his faith and his actions working together. And his faith was made complete, whole, finished, perfect by what he did. In fact, James sums up the whole discussion of faith and obedience working together this way. James 2 and verse 26. Let's read this one out loud together. Anyone who doesn't breathe is dead, and faith that doesn't do anything is just as dead. (laughs) Get much clearer than that, does it? Last Sunday, in our introductory lesson, we talked about the incarnation of the Bible. Remember that? That the Bible's of no value to us unless it begins to be fleshed out in our daily lives. Unless it becomes a part of all that we do and say and think. Unless it becomes incarnate in us. Again, our goal is not information. Our goal is transformation. We don't need more information. What we need is life change. Transformation. In a word, obedience. Obedience. Last Monday night, NCAA football championship game was played, and Clemson, shall we just say, crushed Alabama and won the national championship. Right now we're in the middle of the NFL playoffs, as many of you well know, because you're rooting for your team we understand enough about football i thought i could use this illustration imagine that you're watching your favorite football team on television it's the playoffs and you know you just want them to win the first time you've got the ball it's first down, and, and your team's out on the field, and they huddle together, and the coach sends in a play. I don't know if you know, they have you know, speakers in their helmets. and He sends in a play, and the quarterback gets that play, and then the quarterback relays that play to those guys that are in the huddle, and they break the huddle, and you're getting really anxious. All right, now we get to get this game underway. We're going to take the ball down the field, and we are going to score a touchdown. But instead of lining up at the line, the team goes over and sits on the bench. And you're going, wait a minute. Referees don't know quite what to do either, and so they just signal it's now second down your team comes back out on the field again and they get in the huddle and the quarterback calls another play and all the guys, you know, they're excited. Whoa, that is a great play, quarterback. Way to go. We think that's an excellent play. Way to call the play. And then they go back over and they sit on the sidelines. (laughs) Now about this time you're thinking, wait a minute. Aren't they ever going to run a play? Sometimes I wonder if that isn't the church. God calls a play. And the quarterback, that's me, relays the play in the huddle. That's where we are today. And on the way out, you meet me at the door. Good call, quarterback. Wait a go! that was a great play. I really like that play. And then nothing ever happens and we come back the next Sunday and we get in the holy huddle all over again and we feel all warm and fuzzy and another play comes and and the quarterback calls the play and on the way out we say way to go quarterback that's a great play and then we just sit on the sidelines and we don't do anything am I making sense here? that's right we can say we have faith right we can get in the holy huddle all we want. But if we don't ever run a play, what's the point? So second, the sense of Genesis is all about obedience. Whatever else we may take away from these examples of these great men and women of faith, certainly we must learn the importance of obedience. Obedience. Beginnings and obedience. Certainly there are many, many other lessons to be learned and applied to our lives, but these two just seem to jump off the pages of Genesis, and I wanted to highlight them for our own personal application today. Route 66, Genesis. As we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible today, we focused on the very first book, the book of Genesis the structure, the story, the Savior, in the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Exodus. By the way, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. So if you read six chapters a day, you'll read through the entire book before we gather together next week. There's your homework assignment. Now the book of Genesis ends with these words. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land He promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's where we will begin next week with the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father, we come before You today thanking You for Your Word. Thank You that we've had this opportunity this morning to just review the book of Genesis. What an incredibly important book this is. Sometimes we overlook it. As we think about the beginnings, God, may we never compromise those. I confess, God, the sin of the church in forsaking those beginnings, those foundational principles many times of allowing our world to go astray, to undermine, to ignore, even to mock these foundational principles that You established at the very beginning of it all. Help us, O God. And then this lesson of obedience, whatever else we may learn, as we walk by faith, may we walk by faith, not a faith that's dead, that has no life in it, but a faith that is alive, that does what you have called us to do. We want to be your people. We want to be a people of the book. And so that begins here in Genesis. And help us to apply these lessons to our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.